1: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
2: You've probably heard of Darwin's voyage to the Galapagos Islands in 1835, an event that's pretty iconic in the history of evolution. But there is another part of this story, an expedition to the Galapagos in 1905, that no one really knows about. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Matthew James talks about the 1905 Galapagos Expedition, organized by the California Academy of Sciences. James is a professor of geology at Sonoma State University. He's the author of Collecting Evolution, the Galapagos Expedition that Vindicated Darwin. Matthew James, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. So in 1905 an expedition ship the academy leaves California en route to the Galapagos Islands. I was wondering if you could tell us what it was attempting to do.
0: Yes, the expedition from the Big Museum in San Francisco, the California Academy of Sciences was really setting out in part to bolster the reputation of the academy. And they were really not going to either support evolution or refute evolution, but rather they were going to collect evolution. They were going to collect specimens that would then be studied later by the more senior scientists who stayed home in San Francisco and the specimens specimens were collected uh, by younger junior field collectors.
2: So this expedition, it wasn't on a a modern ship. The Academy was, uh, was a sailing ship. Could you describe something about the expedition itself?
0: Sure. On the vessel, the Academy, it was built for the United States Coast Survey, which was the maritime equivalent of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It was built in in Baltimore, Maryland, but then was used on the West Coast a lot, all the way up into Alaska, and eventually it came into the hands of the California Academy of Sciences after being thrown ashore in a big storm in 1904. So one of the ironies of this expedition is that the Academy could not get a sailing vessel to undertake their expedition because none was available, none was for sale, until this vessel became available. So they had to delay their expedition by a substantial amount of time, and that delay was undoubtedly frustrating for them, but it turned out to be extremely ironic that they had to delay. And that irony is because while they were gone, on the delayed version, their entire museum was destroyed in San Francisco by the 1906 earthquake. That happened on April 18th. So had they gone when they originally wanted to go, they would have come home in March of 1906. And the first thing you do after an expedition is you put all your specimens away so you can start counting them up and and, uh, studying them. And they would have put them away in the museum in March of 1906. And lo and behold, everything would have been destroyed as everything was destroyed in April of 1906. And so... That is a tremendous irony.
2: You uh, mentioned that the expedition was going to the Galapagos to collect data, collect specimens surrounding the issue of evolution. I was wondering if you could talk about where evolution stood as an idea at the turn of the century.
0: Yes, it turns out that not only evolution was in a state of flux, but there were really three areas that were in a similar state of flux. One was conservation, in the sense that we know of conservation and conservation biology today. The other was geology and the origin of the islands. And then the third was evolution and really the mechanism of evolution, whether it was natural selection or mutation or something else. Mm -hmm. So natural selection, as we think of it today, and as we learn as undergraduates, um, is such a central part of the idea of evolution, but it was not in 1905. Um, It was not fully accepted that evolution proceeded by way of natural selection. Likewise, in geology, there was a countervailing idea to what we have today, which was that the islands were a a small continent that had sunk beneath the waves and that the islands were the tips of mountains, volcanoes uh, that otherwise had been part of a landmass. That's the subsidence idea. And ironically, the members of this expedition largely bought into that subsidence idea. So their collecting was driven with a desire to show that subsidence was correct. And that subsidence idea was formulated by a person named George Bauer, who um, was convinced that the islands had previously been connected to the South American mainland or to Central America by way of this land bridge everything had sunk down. He called that former landmass Galapagos land, and that the islands were merely the remnants of tall mountains, not that they had been built up from the seafloor, as we know today in the hotspot geologic mechanism, just as the Hawaiian islands are built up that exact same way. And then in the world of conservation, it was thought that Species were inexhaustible, that you could collect as many as you wanted specimens, and that it wouldn't really reduce their numbers substantially. And so, that idea of inexhaustible nature was really propounded by Elliot Cowes, one of the prominent ornithologists of the time, who said that if you wanted to study birds, you should collect 50 or 100 of everything except the most common species. Oh, God. Because the most common ones you could get later. But any bird you wanted to study, you should collect 50 or 100, lay them out on the table, and that way you would be able to study them. So although today, very rightly, uh, people use binoculars to study birds, back then people used a shotgun to study birds. And that is one of the, the biggest challenges of my writing, was to put these ideas into historical context that we don't adhere to any longer. And it is difficult for for readers, sometimes to understand that the things that were done back then were really the standard procedures of the day, not that they were being outrageously, you know, destructive as we might interpret them being today.
2: In fact, you actually refer to this. Uh, there's a eloquent piece of writing where you describe the journey of three scientists to uh, Narborough Island, on which no one had ever seen, as I understand it, giant tortoises before, and. Rollo Beck, the chief of the expedition, finds an old male tortoise there, maybe the only one on the island, and he uh, kills it, skins it, and collects it. And you write in your book, the skinning by moonlight brought the tortoises one step closer to extinction and Darwin's mechanism of island evolution one step closer to being understood. I was wondering if you could explain what you meant there.
0: Yes, certainly. One of the things I would say about this expedition is that no species were made extinct, uh, despite the large number of specimens that museum specimens that were collected, and especially in regard to tortoises. It's well established by looking at the whalers' logbooks. Uh, this was done in the nineteen twenties, and then estimating in terms of how many other whalers visited the islands, in addition to other mariners and sealers and buccaneers, that about 200,000 giant tortoises were removed from the islands for food by mariners of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And those were were taken and they're gone. Um, Even when Darwin was visiting the archipelago on the Beagle, his crew members took 33 giant tortoises. And it turns out they ate them on the way to Tahiti and threw the shells overboard because at that time they didn't mean very much to Darwin. Darwin was really not a a converted evolutionist um, until he got back to England. And so when you hear about the 200,000 and you hear about even Darwin in the 33, when you then hear that this 1905-06 expedition collected and brought back to San Francisco 266 giant tortoises, it really very much puts it into into perspective, that 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 266 is not a particularly bad number, given that they're all available still for scientific study. So in in that light, it was known that the tortoises were in danger of um, of disappearing, uh, that there was this cry for conservation of the sort that could be done back then. And back then, to preserve a species, it was really preserved in a museum, not preserved in the field as we would today. So the standards were different back then, the techniques were different back then, uh, the resources were different. Everything was different, and that's the challenge of writing a, of a historical study on this. On this one island, Rollo Beck, the leader of the 190506 expedition, knew that no tortoise had ever been collected, as you mentioned, and so when he went ashore. He was immediately looking for evidence of tortoises, and that usually was in the the form of the trails that they sort of bulldozed through the bushes, the very distinctive trails, or he would look for their scat and be able to tell that they were there. And so by using both of those techniques, he was able to track down a tortoise, and he knew, Rollo Beck, that no tortoise had been collected because he had been on several other expeditions and he was very much an expert at collecting giant tortoises. So when he found this tortoise, it never probably occurred to him that it was going to be the last one. He was probably thinking, this is the first one that has ever been found on this island. So none was ever seen after that. So it could have been a stray. It could have been some sort of anomaly. Um, often when the tortoises are on any island, they live, they die, and their shells can be seen as you're walking around. Uh, Sometimes the shells, although they're dark when they're alive, when the animals have been in the sun for dozens or hundreds of years, the shells are, are white um, because all of these dark plates fall off and you're just left over with the bone. So even flying over, you could see these white specks. That would be the evidence of previous tortoise life. Uh, but that even that was never found on this one island, uh, Fernandina today or Narborough back then.
2: Was um, I, I'm wondering what people thought of the Galapagos Islands at the turn of the century did they have especially for these young men the kind of iconic status you know as this um, this place where Darwin comes up with the evidence for evolution that it's now you know seen as or was it seen differently
0: it very much was seen differently that whole story of the Galapagos being crucial to Darwin is part of a a broader topic that i've not in i've included a lot of that in the book um, but i've thought so much about it in the meantime since the book came out and one of the ways that i frame it is by using an analogy with uh, comic book writers Uh, in in that genre there's um, something called retroactive continuity Retcon, it's called. And I'm I'm not a big fan of comic books. so I'm not an expert. But uh, events that uh, happened in earlier comic books are put into context in a later comic book by explaining, oh, this is how so-and-so met and this is how this happened or that happened. So that kind of retroactive continuity was definitely applied to Darwin. And that was really done to a large extent in the 1960s and late 1950s and into the early 1960s when UNESCO was planning to build a research station on the islands. And so the the notion that the Galapagos were Darwin's living outdoor laboratory of evolution is a relatively new idea. Hmm. And one of the groups of organisms that epitomizes that is Darwin's finches. And it turns out that during Darwin's lifetime, he didn't study the finches very much, although he knew about them. He knew that they were unique in the islands. But the birds that were important to Darwin were the mockingbirds, of which he had three species. And after his death, there was a fourth species named. So the the group of birds that really epitomizes the notion of evolution in the Galapagos is Darwin's finches. So the 1905-06 expedition, they collected some Thirty-eight hundred specimens of Darwin's finches, and again, that sounds like a lot, but none were made extinct. The birds are very prolific; they breed and uh, replace their numbers very quickly. So, those thirty-eight hundred specimens are still housed at the California Academy of Sciences. Yeah, did uh, did the
2: young man? I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a, about the The young male scientists um, aboard this expedition did they get along? Did they see themselves
0: as uh, walking in darwin's footsteps? right, they got along fairly well. There was a little bit of fighting um, there was probably much less fighting than you might imagine, given that the expedition lasted for seventeen months and conditions were at times very harsh, very severe, dangerous. you know it would try the patience of anyone and under those kinds of harsh, dangerous conditions, that's when people begin to really break down and act badly. And that didn't happen on this expedition. So they all got together well enough that they all came home. And the only person who was kicked off the expedition was the navigator, (laughs) who was the most elderly person on the voyage, perhaps around, around 60 years old. And he apparently, uh, from what they wrote, had sort of both bad vision and bad judgment, and that caused him to run the schooner aground a couple of times. (laughs) So they all voted in what was really the maritime equivalent of a mutiny, because they all signed the logbook to this effect, saying either he goes or we go. And, And that's a really serious thing in maritime law, to do that. Uh, the person who didn't sign that declaration was Rollo Beck because he could not do that by maritime law. He he had to stay away from that. So they, they basically said that these specimens we have collected now for, for you know, close to a year are so valuable and they are in such danger due to the bad judgment of the navigator, Parker, that we, we need to have a make-or-break moment. So Parker was not happy about this. They note in their field notes that Parker wanted to fight with knives. And they managed to disarm him, and they put him ashore on one of the islands, offered to lend assistance in whatever way they could to get him home, but he turned down that assistance. And so by the time the expedition got home in late 1906, Parker didn't get home until early 1907. And so it shows you how difficult it would have been to get home from the Galapagos to San Francisco on your own back
1: then. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals... Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: And uh, as the expedition returns home, it's it's coming home with seventy eight thousand specimens. Yes. How do you preserve seventy eight thousand specimens of plant and animal life on a on a ship and bring them back?
0: Yeah, I would say one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually is part of the story. When I was writing the book. I very much wanted to include the quotidian routine of the expedition of how one specimen at a time is gathered and preserved and collected and added to all the rest. That was very important to me, not to just say they went, they collected this this material and here's what it means. So I, I really very much wanted to focus on that. And each kind of organism requires its own techniques. So a giant tortoise is a tremendously difficult organism to preserve. They are giant tortoises, perhaps as heavy as a full American refrigerator when they're alive. And you would have to carry this mile after mile after mile from up in the highlands, down to the coast, and then into a rowboat, out past the surf, because the schooner is anchored beyond the surf, and then up into the schooner, and then dealt with perhaps days later because you don't want to dispense with all the living animals because otherwise they'll start to rot in the tropical sun. So you have to do them one at a time. Other organisms of which they collected many of were plants and leaves. And of course, those have to be pressed temporarily between newspaper to get most of the moisture out and then added onto botany sheets with labels and information. Insects, of course, are, are pinned with labels. So each organism has its own technique. And this expedition did not collect very many marine organisms at all. In fact, several of the members could not swim. So it was an entirely terrestrial expedition. Most of the marine material they collected were shells, uh, marine shells that had washed up on the beach. So the person who collected fossils also collected shells.
2: So I would imagine that for the purposes of documenting the plant and animal life of the islands scientists back home were really looking at the morphology the shape and the size and the color of these different specimens to try to figure out their evolutionary relationships
0: absolutely yes Uh, that was the name of the game is what we would call today alpha taxonomy, deciding what genus, what species, anything belongs to. In the same sense of Tyrannosaurus rex being a genus and a species of dinosaur, that was the decision that was made about every plant, every snail, every tortoise uh, that was brought back. And that kind of taxonomic work of just documenting what is there is now today referred to as documenting biodiversity. We are documenting the organisms of the rainforest or the coral reef or any other particular habitat. So in that sense, I've written that they, you know, they set out to visit the Galapagos and they brought the Galapagos home to San Francisco in the form of all of these specimens.
2: To what degree did these specimens actually contribute to the debate over the actual mechanism of, of evolution, whether it was natural selection, as Darwin had put forward, or um, there were other theories of uh, inheritance of acquired characteristics or mutation or other things. I mean, were the, were the specimens
0: used in the end
2: towards that goal? They,
0: they were, in particular with Darwin's finches. and And so with this large collection housed in San Francisco, an Englishman, David Lack, came to San Francisco for three months to study the birds and did um, after having done his own field work in the Galapagos. And from that extensive study, he published a substantial monograph in a publication series called The Occasional Papers of the California Academy of Sciences. And in that publication, he said the beaks of the finches are for species recognition, so that birds would look off across the way see another bird look at their beak realize either you are or are not my own species and and that was the function of the beaks that publication came out it still exists you can get it on the biodiversity library website and uh, that was Lack's answer to what are the beaks for World War II came and went, and Lack revised his data and revised his thinking and republished the entire thing as a book with Cambridge University Press, still in print, called Darwin's Finches. And that is really the the basis for our, our familiarity with Darwin's Finches today. And in that second publication, Lack says the beaks are for feeding specializations. And that is the story we know today. So there really are two stories about Darwin's finches that came from this expedition. And I, I would always say, in the most respectful way possible, even to researchers who are you know, more experience in the Galapagos than me, is I would say that this 1905-06 expedition is the most important expedition in Galapagos history that you've never heard of. Huh. and And so it really is an untold chapter in Galapagos history. And so things like the story of Darwin's finches really Comes from the 1905-06 expedition because David Lack could not have done his work if not for that large collection housed in San Francisco, and even that book, Darwin's Finches, is dedicated to the staff of the California Academy of Sciences because of the tremendous amount of support that they gave him. So that's one of the things that I would say is that you know of all the of all the things anyone knows about the Galapagos, the story of Darwin's Finches comes from the 1905-06 expedition. Not that they themselves did the work, but without the specimens, without the collection, Lack could not have done his work, or you you could argue he would have done a different version of his work, if not for that large collection.
2: It seems to me that uh, so much of the work that we um, see Evolutionary biologists do today is focused on, let's say, genetic relationships and other aspects of life besides morphology. Are these specimens still useful towards that work, or are they kind of relics of a different, you know,
0: bygone era? I would say they're still useful because all you need is a, a fingernail clipping size piece of tissue that you could get off of a of a bird skin or a tortoise shell or or any other organism and use that to amplify the DNA and then have um, you know no shortage of material for doing genetic analyses so the specimens are very much still in use today not only for their external morphology for the all of the bumps and hooks and knobs that any organism has but also for its DNA yes
2: You uh, visited the islands for the first time in 1982, and you've gone back a number of times since. I was wondering uh, what your
0: impressions of the Galapagos were the first time you were there. My impression of the first time, which was in 1982, when I was a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley, was very much um, affected by the fact that I was sick when I went there. And, and so I, I can't separate that out from the actual experience itself. So as a graduate student, I was living my life. We put together this expedition and we went there and I promptly came down with mononucleosis, as many students do. And I was treated incorrectly for it. I was given a shot of penicillin by a young doctor in the islands. And anyone who is treated that way will break out in a rash over their entire body, which I did. And I'm not allergic to penicillin. (laughs) So um, this mononucleosis affected me so severely that my liver was inflamed and it was extremely painful. So it was pressing against my ribs and I am trying to function in this expedition and not really able to. And so that first trip to the islands was a landmark for me by all means uh, that year uh, was tremendously important to me 1982 but it also was um, fraught with bad memories of being so ill it it also meant that because i hadn't collected as many of the specimens as other people on the expedition had there were some complicated interactions with the other members of the of the expedition in years later and so i was a little bit twisted up in the dog leash of scientific interactions And so I was very much looking forward to finding a project that I could work on all by myself. And that's when I found the story of the 1905-06 expedition through the archives at the California Academy of Sciences with their archival material that was literally untouched. Envelopes, uh, letters in envelopes that had been opened and read by the recipient in, say, 1903 or 1905 or 1907, uh, but then... Put away as we all put letters back into their envelopes and then never looked at again until we got uh, our hands on them and we started opening them up wearing cotton gloves and and treating them in a very respectful way and and just being amazed at what we were reading in each of these letters the archivist michelle welk and myself and so we sort of leapfrogged uh, past each other in in looking at this and then i i took on the project in a big way and eventually spending some 48 to 10 hour days in the archives at the academy and just accumulating this uh, very substantial amount of information, uh, which was so uh, rich and and was such an untold story uh, that it was really clear that that was going to head off in the direction of being a book.
2: Listening to you talk about your first uh, impressions of the island and, the, you know, getting sick and having a fever, having a swollen liver, and then having various disagreements and interactions with other scientists on the expedition. It sounds very 19th century to me. I, I'm just thinking like this is probably a more realistic uh, experience of, uh, of island expeditionary life than, uh, than the kinds of expeditions you would do there today.
0: I often have thought that I wished I could have lived in the nineteenth century to experience what it was like. Uh, but in terms of uh, those kinds of interactions, you know, maybe you know, maybe you don't want to have those <laughs> uh, too many of those interactions.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I was on a very brief expedition in two thousand and four on one of the these big ships. Uh, I th- it was called the Corwith Kramer from the Sea Education yeah. Association, and. And, uh, you know, it was a faculty cruise. And so we were there, you know, doing a kind of mock-up of what a real semester at sea would be. Uh, And I'm a total landlubber, but I remember, you know, having, we were going to have these moments where we talked about history of science aboard ship, but we were on this uh, watch system where we had to sleep, you know. Uh, work for eight hours and then sleep for eight hours and it rotates through the course of the day. by you know five days in I was so disoriented, sleep deprived, it was too hot. I was really incapable of doing any mental work at all. And I felt in a way that although you know my cruise was nothing like Darwin's cruise or others, it it actually made me appreciate more how difficult it would have been to be aboard ship and to have to do all of this collecting and then to be coherent enough to write about it and catalog it.
0: I agree completely that I I think that you and I have had parallel experiences that when I was on my collecting expedition in 1982, and then when I was on other vessels for 11 days or 14 days at a time, that you do get sleep deprived because if the vessel is navigating at night and going through the swells, uh, that it often wakes you up because it, it jostles you left and right and so then you wake up in the morning you know having slept not deeply enough and and so yeah your perspective on the world changes that your attitude is much less positive uh than it would have been had you had a good night's sleep i think we all feel that way if we get a good night's sleep we feel so much better the next day and then if you don't do that for days and days and days on end um that it is very stressful it's very it's a very stressful time so um i I can't agree with you more
2: (laughs) well matthew james thank you so much for talking with me
0: thank you very much
2: that's it for today the music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase at gmail.com See you next week.